Welcome to The New Romantics. This is me, Sophie Scott. And this is me, Will Eaves. And each week, or each podcast I should say, Will gives me some interesting literature to read and I give him an enormous great big scientific <laughs> paper. And this entire enterprise... <laughs> and we're very pleased to say that this work is now being sponsored by a prize from the Royal Literary Society, Literature Indeed Matters. It is. Fantastic. Will. Right. Well, just to sort of cheer us all along, we've decided to look at the topic of death and <laughs> thanatological behaviour in primates this week. And I don't know whether she'd be complimented by this or not, but alongside that, in the world of literature, we've got a poem by Christina Rossetti. I'm sure she never thought about anything else. And the first chapter of a wonderful novel by Penelope Fitzgerald, her second novel, The Bookshop. But I think what I'm going to suggest, Sophie, is that we, controversially, we start with the quite famous poem, Mm. Remember, which I'm sure lots of listeners will know from memorial services, um, if they've been to them. It's a favourite to be read out at those. I mean, it is very beautiful, but I think it's, it's got a harder edge than people sometimes imagine. And then we'll move on to the paper by... Andre Gonçalves and Susanna Cavallo, I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly, which is called Death Among Primates, a Critical Review of Non-Human Primate Interactions Towards Their Dead and Dying, with some very, very interesting material in the latter half of the paper about the ape-hominid divide and the emergence of mortuary rites and the possibility of advanced awareness in interactions with corpses and with um, infant mortality. But we'll start with uh, Christina Rossetti. Shall I just read it out since it's so short? Please. Remember, and this was published in Goblin Market and other poems in 1862, but it was written, I think, about 13 or 14 years earlier than that, and then revised a couple of times. But this is the version that's, that's now with us. Remember me when I am gone away, gone far away into the silent land, when you can no more hold me by the hand, nor I half turn to go, yet turning stay. Remember me, when no more day by day you tell me of our future that you planned. Only remember me. You understand it will be late to counsel then, or pray. Yet if you should forget me for a while, and afterwards remember, do not grieve. For if the darkness and corruption leave a vestige of the thoughts that once I had, Better by far you should forget and smile than that you should remember and be sad. I mean, I I think you probably had encountered that poem in some form before. I have. I think I've heard that at a funeral, yeah. Yeah. It's an unusual memorial poem, it seems to me, because it has a nice change in it. it when I read it. It's not simply about remembering someone who's gone and grieving for them. It is an instruction to the living. And I think that actually what's... It's not quite right to say it's a hard-edged thing, but what's really interesting about the poem is that it's all about how we should behave after someone dies. Mm. It's not about the imponderable emotional business of, you know, what it is to to miss someone. It's actually what is the brass tacks right way of responding to the loss of agency, yeah. the loss of a person, and by extension, 
really the loss of oneself later on to the prospect of one's own mortality. You know, how do we react to it? The first half appears to be... So this is a Petrarchan sonnet. What does that mean? Well, that means that there are sort of... Loosely, there's sort of two formal types of sonnet. There's the Petrarchan sonnet, which is developed by a lot of Renaissance poets, and it goes back to Petrarch. And they all have 14 lines, Mm. but the Petrarchan sonnet has what's called an octave, which is an argument in the first eight lines that's developed and proposed, a, a proposed idea. And then in the sestet, which is the second six, the argument is sort of turned, or it's, it's revisited, and sometimes it's completely overthrown. So here you'll notice that where we have yet, if you should forget me for a while, mm. she's, she begins to think about not remembrance, but actually the possibility of letting someone go. Mm. and getting on with your own life. So that's the nature of the turn here. I think there's also an interesting, almost sort of fictional component in the sestet, because suddenly you become aware that it's not just a poet speaking about death, but it's a poet developing a kind of the persona of a dead person. Mm. It's like a kind of ghost talking And that's a strong tradition in dramatic monologue in English poetry. The voice that turns out to be the voice from beyond that isn't traceable to a particular person or body because the person has gone. So the wife's lament in Anglo-Saxon poetry is quite possibly spoken by a a, a dead person who's haunting this underground grave. And Elizabeth Bishop's poem, Filling Station, which is a voice looking at a a family filling station in America where all the objects are in place, but the family are missing. You can sort of see the evidence of the sons and the father, but the mother, who's kept everything, you know, who's who's embroidered this daisy-stitch sort of crochet thing that lies, like an antimacassar that lies over a chair, is gone. She's not there. Mm. And it's possible that the voice speaking the poem is the mother. She's a sort of ghost. Mm. So there's that move from the physical to the absent within the poem, which seems to me to be very cunning and moving. But the, the main thing that struck me reading it again was this business of it's, it's one's etiquette in the face of death. Don't worry about that you forgot me. It's more important that you carry on. It's more important that you behave normally. Mm. Is quite an unusual thing to be said at this stage. The thing that struck me, and struck is the wrong phrase because this is something, you know, a particularly profound thing I'm about to say, but it's much, it's almost easier to think about one's own death in terms of other people's reaction and, and possibly how you would like that to be. I mean, the classic example of wanting to be at your own funeral or what songs will be played or that kind of side of it, which is a bit of a, a body swerve around the actual aspect of death, which is that you won't be there and it won't matter to you. You're the least person to be affected by any of this because you've gone. And that side of it is very, very hard to really believe all the evidence we have about human cognition is that we are phenomenally bad at ever imagining that we could ever do anything wrong. And certainly, imagining us not being here is, personally, is much harder to imagine than there are other people, other people around you, people that you love, you think it would be awful if they're not here. 
Whereas you can't sort of, you know, the, the, when we think of that in terms of ourselves, we think about that in terms of, well, you'll miss me. Still, that's the, do you see what I mean? It's still about the other people, their reactions exactly. rather than actually that's your very absence. Good, but, but we can't really conceptualise it for ourselves. Mm. Yeah, it, I mean, philosophers write about this quite a lot. And they say just that, you know, it's one thing to conceptualise about whether death can actually happen at all to a mm. subject. If death is the absence of subjecthood and agency, then can it be said really to happen to a person? When does it happen? Yeah. Which is a sort of, in a way, quite a naive view of life, but it's still an interesting question. But we know we're going to die. And the, and the trouble with that abstract view, I think, of death not happening to a subject is that life, as I think somebody once put it, you know, familiarises us with the good that will then be lost in death. And that's what... Um, it, it's the possibility of the loss of history, in a way, that matters to us. And that's why we can't feel very sorry about the fact that we weren't born earlier. Yeah. Because if we were born substantially earlier, and I think Thomas Nagel says this, and it's always struck me as a very interesting thing, we would be a different person. Yeah. But our life has satisfied us that it belongs to us. So agency is wrapped up with possession of history. Yeah. It's very, very hard for it to be an abstract concept. That's a rather beautiful idea because it, it's always sort of shocking to realise this, but as far as we can see, there have been no evolutionary processes in terms of human cognition since the appearance of modern humans. So if you were to take a human infant from any point in history immediately and mm. raise them, you know, zoom around in your time machine, they would cope with that situation. Mm. Because our brains are so flexible and so plastic and we're so adaptive and so well, you know, so good mm. at coping with change, like too good sometimes. But because the corollary of that is that you are completely shaped by your time and your place. And, you know, we have a tendency to look back and go, oh, dear me, yes. they didn't have hovercraft or whatever. That would yeah. be a terrible time to be alive. And forget that, you know, like the, the Victorians thought they were absolutely sorted. They got trains. This is it. Yeah. You know? So everybody thinks this is great. This is, this is where we're at. This is the best. But that's just humans being humans. It is fascinating. I'm interested just the phrase you used there, you know, adapting to change and how we, how we annex that to a sense of history. It's obviously quite difficult for us individually, I think. I think we can do it at the sort of, at the level of tribe, people, country, history, but it's, it's hard yeah. to do. You're saying it's hard to do personally, it, really. I think so. And that's partly because, you know, life isn't a randomised control trial. and You don't get to, OK, let's try this again. And this time I'll learn Mandarin. You know, you don't have those options. You can't run yourself under different conditions. So your experience is so shaped by your brain and your context and your adaptations to that. It's the water you swim in. You don't taste water. Water yeah. has a taste, yeah. just, it's in everything so we don't taste it. So it's that kind of thing that is very hard for us to take a step back from. It's one of the reasons why I like going into neuroscience, is it does, on occasions, give you a, like a, like a lever for prying open some of the things you can't simply get at by thinking about your experience. Yeah. But it's, I'm by no means the only way of doing that, but because it is so interestingly unitary... Yeah. And sort of feel yeah. so whole and also largely yeah. right. Like, I am glad I'm me now. That's, that's yeah. where I want yeah. to be. I think that this is where we can perhaps move from Rossetti or, or through a couple of lines, which the, the first two lines, in fact, to the, to the biological, the, the paper about death among primates. The Rossetti poem 
has this interesting repetition that happens at the end of one line and the beginning of the next, in lines one and two. Remember me when I am gone away, gone far away into the silent land. What seems to be happening there is the voice or the persona poet is introducing the notion of, of death as a sort of metaphorical explanation and then slightly pushing it a bit further so that it becomes a little more explicit so that we become more comfortable with the idea yeah. of the loss. And this is very much what the paper explores because it seems to me that it's looking at this profound moment of change. Let's, if, if I call it a crisis, that introduces a notion of agency straight away, so let's just put part that for a moment. But a moment of kind of great crisis where a living animal becomes an object but is still recognisable, mm. we think, to the tribe members of the primate group as the originating animal. Mm. And what they seem to do is, and there's lots of varied responses across species, but they seem to test the situation to see whether it reacts, mm. to alleviate grieving, possibly to take precautionary measures against pathogen invasion or, or scavenging or predators. But they're doing what the poem does. They're introducing an idea and making it objective by prodding it. Yeah. Taking it a bit further so that it yields a bit of solid meaning. Yeah. Does that, does that sound right? I think so. I mean, I think the, the context for this and why I thought it was interesting, there is a tremendous lack of fashionability for comparative studies in psychology and neuroscience. It's not that they don't happen. It's not that people aren't studying other animals. But I think because, you know, when I was first reading, the, you know, as a, as a school child, things like The Naked Ape, I think that just gave comparative or trite comparisons within comparative science an excessively bad name, probably correctly. But it meant that even if you're working in a context like I study humans, humans are primates, primate brains are different from the brains of other mammals in very consistent ways. And although we're funny looking apes, we're still apes. You would think there would be a lot you could learn from making comparisons. And indeed, in terms of very, very boring aspects of how sound is processed, that's most of what I do. And you can find tremendous congruity between human and non-human primate brains in this respect. But when you get to these things, these kind of emotional responses, so this is, it's a paper about death and grief. And they're very, very careful to not try and just make it straight down the line, naked ape, anthropomorphising. No, and they that's are very careful. Really, really trying to avoid. And they're so cautious and careful in their interpretations and setting out other possible reasons why things might be happening that don't necessarily mean that there is some recognition of the death and a reaction to that, which is some way of trying to manage it and deal with that situation. But they do end up with this strong conclusion that that is what is in fact happening, that it's not a, a meaningless event and they aren't reacting as if this is somehow now become other and different in an unrecognisable way. There is this changed state of a known individual and they care about that. And as you say, they're, they're sometimes quite aggressive behaviour and sometimes terribly caring, like kind of wiping away blood. It's all trying to manage this changed situation. And as you say, I think that's a nice comparison with the sort of the prodding and the pushing and going even down to sort of covering and 
disguising. And the writers, I think, are very, very good. They're, as you say, they're completely judicious about the meaning of these activities. So just as Rossetti is about sort of behaviour, this, really, this is very, very, very good on just the sort of description of these behaviours mm. uh, without ascribing too much to them. And that, the covering that you've just mentioned is, is, is an interesting one because I think it's the, it's the chimpanzees that drop branches onto deceased relatives. And I think I'm right in saying that it's ambiguous yeah. because it may have some very slight initial primordial mortuary function but they're pretty clear that's unlikely. Yeah. It's more about actually, it seems to me, although they don't quite say this, it's more about how you deal with the loss of agency, how you recognise the thing that was living, organic and related to you, to the tribe, and how you distinguish that mm. from the inert shape that looks like the ape that belonged but is no longer and in that sense it seems to me it's actually about personhood yeah I think that's precisely correct actually I think you're really looking at a quite a strong cue about the role of personhood for other apes it's not we're not the only animals that do this Does it vary up the scale of the apes in the way? I mean, they're, they're kind of thinking, does it, was it like this for early hominids? Because it's a bit like this for apes at the moment. It is interesting if you look at the fossil record for early precursors to humans, because you do, you find, by no means, you know, apes can be phenomenally violent and quite murdery, but they will also care for each other. And they will look after older members who you need help. And there are kind of lots of accounts of them, you know, taking them across open land first so mm. they can be watched, that kind of thing. And you can find that in the fossil record for humans. Oh, humans, Homo agastus, who died of, as an old enough age that they've got like, incapacitating arthritis or you know, signs of poisoning in their bones that mean they probably couldn't have looked after themselves. Someone cared for them. Mm. for long enough that they lived like that and that is there before we were talking to each other mm. and we can, the homo agasta couldn't speak so you know you can sort of see that pattern of continuity we don't know anything else about the you know the kind of funeral mortuary tendencies of other humans we've got so little you know bits of pieces of fossil to go off anyway but you could certainly imagine that if though you know there's that kind of continuity of care and it sounds, again, like terribly naff and trite. But one of the things that is interesting about mammals, because mammals have to be nursed, they have to have this period of being juveniles. So they are always social, because in that period of being juveniles and being nursed, they are in a family unit. Yeah. Even if they grow up to be an asocial, completely asocial predator mammal, they have had a period when We've they were... we <laughs> They will have had this period of being, you know, social juveniles. And there's this kind of role for some kind of elaborated, meaningful contact that seems to be there in mammals. You don't find that happening so much, saying turtles or snakes. Maybe birds a bit. Maybe, maybe mm. birds are another... Corvids, so, yeah, maybe. Yeah, the birds you get some interesting kind of yeah, parallel of evolution for birds and aspects of mammals. 
But so, for example, there have been accounts in in the giraffe community, and giraffes have enormously complex social lives. Really, get me on sexuality in giraffes; it's crazy. But you know, there are accounts of like older male giraffes dying, and giraffes coming from miles around just to look. They're not going for it like the primates. They're not mm. jiggling them around. They're just like, okay, no, he really has gone. There's some kind of acknowledgement of that. So it's possible this is something that has a wider reach because we are still mammals and mammals have this kind of some necessary social linking to be mammals that we maybe have particularly elaborated form of in apes because apes are so phenomenally social and can do very coordinated behaviour and plan things. Like chimps can organise hunts in a very social, you know, complex way. So that kind of, the communicative stuff really kicks off when you get to apes. But the care may not be completely not there in other mammals. And care in this context is actually necessarily, at least on one obvious side, about stillness. Mm. And it seems to me that that one of the tricky things here is the stillness cues and what they mean for the living. Because immobility and likeness, so the dead member of the tribe is not moving anymore but it looks like the living member of the tribe. But that on its own doesn't mean that you can necessarily ascribe death to that thing because, of course, it might be something very sick or inert or it might, it might wake up. Mm. So there's, some, there's something about, I think, maybe both mammals and apes having to wait with an inert form before they know what status yeah. that inertness that immobility has and the only way around that really is to observe and wait i mean even even prodding it or dropping leaves on it is not necessarily immediately going to tell you very much and yeah. smell may not tell you very much because there may be a lot of bad smells around yeah which yeah, is an it's... interesting part in the paper that actually it's you know the the, the the stench which would seem to us such a cue for decay may not be as significant no but smell is primates. yeah, it is less meaningful to primates. Probably other mammals would be much, much more alert to that. Well, that's a very good point. That's fascinating. I I, I think of smell as being such a sort of primary. Uh... It is. So smell has um, it's, it's an important sense to us. And it's the only sense that directly plugs into the brain. So every other thing you experience from the world and from your body, when it's coming into your brain, it goes through like a kind of relay station in mm. called the thalamus, and then it projects up to the cortex. The nasal mucosa, there are nerve cells coming out of the back of the nasal mucosa, and they literally go through little holes in your skull yeah. into the olfactory bulb area, which is tiny in humans. So it's, it's one at one of the reasons why smell can be quite hard to articulate but incredibly powerful because you're not processing it in the same way it's not getting sort of elaborated and refined all the other senses are going through a lot of processing before they get anywhere near cortex either particularly hearing and vision but that's not really happening with smell and it's one of the reasons why it can have that kind of sort of it can be a very strong association and sometimes the way you can't name Mm. you don't have a word for it because you it's not sort of working in the same way the flip side of this is it's even more important for other mammals. Mammals evolved in the dark. They are basically all 
knows. I love going to London Zoo and I love going to the, look at the pigs. There are these bearded pigs who've got a nose almost like the length of half their body. It's phenomenal nose and that's going to be a huge nasal mucosa. And then a brain with an absolutely huge olfactory bulb because the world for that pig is a world of smell. And also a lovely mobile nose that you can sort of rootle around with. It's like you've got a hand on the front of your face. And most mammals look like that. Most mammals are pretty... Look at their, the horses, dogs. It's just these great big nosy faces. And as soon as you get to apes, faces are flatter. And the brain areas devoted to hearing and seeing become larger. And the brain areas devoted to smell get smaller. Mm. And then they, get, they just get smaller and smaller. So we've got even flatter faces. We've got the flattest faces of the apes. And tiny nasal mucosa. So smell's still important to us, but it does not dominate our sensory world. If you're a dog... Dogs have not got bad hearing, but they've got phenomenal smell, and it's how you, how you primarily find out about like your, your friends and family and how everybody's doing is by smelling their pheromones. That's your dominant sort of social communication, and that's the case for most mammals. I mean, in a way, it's another podcast topic, but I'm quite interested in the distinction between smelling a member of the species, a member of the tribe, the difference between that and smelling an individual. Yes. Uh, because it seems to me that... We, as humans, probably have a slightly better... When we use smell, I think we use it for purposes of individuation. Whereas I think dogs... I mean, yes, they, you know, we famously in the park sniffing each other's asses, but they are also, they will, they will not sniff anyone's arse. They are generous. not <laughs> generously disposed yes. towards their own kind. Actually, I do know a few people like that as well, but anyway, <laughs> by the by. Um, do you know why they, they stick their noses right into the bottoms of other dogs? It's because the pheromones that are released by the anal glands in dogs they're very short-lived, they're released, and then they decay very quickly, so you've got to get your nose right in there, otherwise you can't smell them. And I found that tremendously relieving. <laughs> the air would be sort of full of dog-bum pheromones, which I don't know if I needed that. But the decay of a cue is also actually what this paper is about Mm. because there's not very much correlation, interestingly, between the primate corpse and the amount of time that's given to it, the attention that's given to it. It's very varied. Yes, very, very Very varied. varied. So sometimes, as you might expect, once it's been ascertained that the the, the infant or the, the whoop member has died, once they've done a bit of prodding, they move on because it's a foraging lifestyle. They can't it's spend too long. You've got yeah. to be together. Yeah. And it costs too much, basically, to carry this around. And in other cases, that doesn't seem to apply at all yeah. because the carrying and the nurturing is performing a completely different function. It's very difficult to know whether it is a sort of habituation to the death or whether it is actually... It struck me that one thing they don't mention is that in a young adult or a young mother who might reasonably be expected to bear more children, whether it is making use, nonetheless, of the, of the child object as a form of practice. They refer to it as play at some point when other juveniles who, are, have, who will play with, with the body mm. of an infant, juvenile females, and that seems to be exactly that a kind of a, an opportunity to learn about it in a way that's yeah. sort of removed from a 
the immediate needs of an actually alive infant. No, it's very interesting. And do you think also there's an interesting moment where they talk about infanticide in primates, so that it's pretty grisly, but the moment where the, where the children are killed. And, of course, we are apes, and such a thing, very sadly, you know, is, is, is very well attested here mm. and normally is greeted with sort of howls of, of outrage. But it, it is clearly, clearly part of the natural repertoire of activity. You know, when there are tragedies in the human field, it's often about loss of parental control related to their circumstances, to environment, you know, ability to keep the show on the road at home, uh, as well as more obvious behavioural psychological disorder. And violence towards the child is about trying to control a situation and a person. And it seems to me that that is what the infanticide in the primates is also about. I think consistent with that, there is a slightly terrifying but very clear relationship across mammals. The more social and the more complex the social world those mammals live, the more commonly they commit infanticide. So yes. meerkats are bastards, mm. absolute bastards. They're lovely, cutie ones in the, you know to watch on a, on a nature film. I'm a fan of meerkats, but you really don't want to know about their infanticide rates. It's awful. So it seems to be the two come together. The more complex the social and sort of meaningful the social interactions are, the more likely the infants are to be at risk because I suppose they're an easy, it's an easy target. If you're really going for it in your you know, kind of particular context, that's, that's going to be a, an easy way to do a terrible thing. That would have meaning. And it seems to do exactly that. I see, that. yeah. yeah. I'm using terrible in a way that probably doesn't apply to meerkats, but it is it, the correlation needs some explanation otherwise because the relationship between extreme sociability and infanticide is, is quite strong. It's strong. I mean, it, it seems to be about testing power with suspension of consequence. I think so, and I think the fact that... I, th- I think I'm right in this. Whenever you describe a social mammal, you're talking about a hierarchy. Yeah. of power yeah. and you do find that in other situations you know insects there are social insects but they, the, the power there seems to be organised quite differently you get these very strong networks of hierarchical mm. sort of organisation in social mammals and that's when the children and the infants become particularly at risk it seems mm. so there's some role in that kind of in how you manage that if you are a mammal like us, or particularly a primate, but you're in one of these social hierarchies, your world completely depends on it. Mm. I went to this amazing talk last year by someone who was studying how chimps use tools to try and get rewards, and she was working in this big um, reserve in Africa, and she was particularly interested in when they used other chimps as the tools. And there was one male, she only found one male who did this, there was a setup where you could press a button and get juice, but the button was too far away. Someone and all the other apes would go along in a pair and take turns to press the button while the other one got the juice, and you switch over. This guy was really unpopular. No one would do this with him, so he would basically roll juveniles along, <laughs> force them to press the button while he drank the juice. <laughs> and the explanation seemed to be that the juveniles were happy enough for the attention of an adult. Yeah. And he couldn't get any other chimp to help him because he was not popular, so he didn't care. As long as he got his juice, it wasn't, you know, it was yeah. going to be the only way he was ever going to get any juice, so he didn't care that all the other apes thought he was a bit, presumably a bit naff for doing this. And it was not a long-term thing. Those, those juveniles are going to grow up and then not want to do that anymore and to the group of people, who, other chimps who don't like you. But it was that kind of controlling the situation with the, with the things you can control if you have, you know... Yes. 
Well, goal-directed behaviour basically is, it seems to me, is, yes, it's a matter of, in, of intention, but it's also a matter of opportunism. Yeah. You know, when, they, you know, when, the, when the opportunity arises, and changes the nature of the intention. So, yeah, very interesting. I mean, I, we might, at, at this point, bring in the, the second bit that I brought along, which was the first chapter of a lovely novel by Penelope Fitzgerald, which might, on the face of it, not might not appear to have too much to do with you know, primordial mortuary practices among primates, because it's about a lady at the end of the 50s called Florence Green who tries to open a bookshop in the fictional town of Hardborough in Suffolk, which is based on, I think, Southwold. And she encounters a kind of rigid, sort of petty-mighty provincial hierarchy, class hierarchy, in the town, which, which means, although it's a comic novel, that, that, that things go south pretty quickly. The first chapter really exemplifies, I think, something that's true of Fitzgerald's work, which is alongside the very precisely, beautifully spare observation of comedies of manners in post-war society, largely. Alongside that, there's this absolutely relentless, sharp sense of the human world dividing into, as she said, exterminators and exterminates. And you see it in the opening in her wrestling with the animal world. Mm and with her conversation with a bank manager. I don't know, did you, what did you, did you feel about that? I don't think I've ever read anything by her before, and I, I absolutely loved it. There was a, a sort of a sparseness to the prose and this very dark kind of... The, the lovely example of the heron flying and trying to kind of gulp down an eel, and eel's trying to get away, and that line, they, they, both, they had both taken on too much. Yes, and, um, it's great. They, it's, just, they both, it's fantastic, isn't it? Just beautiful. And then it, I mean, I, I just really, even now, I'm enjoying talking to you, but I'd quite like to just go off and finish it. I really, really want to read the rest of the book. It did remind me of your writing, in that the, the care and the sort of the, the beauty of it, the quite non-flashy but beautifully written... It's like a sort of miniature portrait. It was sort of perfect. Like the the structure of it was just lovely, and giving away like the the conversation with the bank manager or the guy filing the horse's teeth. Yes, there's this fantastic <laughs> bit at the end of the chapter where she's sort of walking across the the marshes, and you see the lovely observation of the of the actual land caught between two reflections. You don't quite know what the sea, what the sky is, and what the the, the water is because they're you know reflected. The sky is reflected yeah. in the water, and she's going across this field, and Mister Raven who's hired out this... No, he's, he's rented out this patch of, of, of land from the sort of council, and he's got a Suffolk punch pony on it. And the horse is starving. Yes. The horse is starving because its teeth have grown and filled its mouth, and it's not getting... It can rip the grass up from the ground, but it can't masticate it. So Florence... I love the lovely the connection with the bank manager's conversation because Mr. Raven says to her, I know you've been to see the bank manager so I to get a loan, so I know you don't scare easy. Now grab <laughs> hold of the horse's tongue and I'll file the teeth. <laughs> it's just a fantastic moment. But, but didn't you think that both the, the shot of the heron flying with the eel half out of its mouth 
and her kind of hanging on yeah. to this moving tongue yeah, like with, a, with, a, with, a, with a horse that's, that, that will otherwise die. They're a bit like, I mean, I can see them so vividly. They're rather like funerary inscriptions or hieroglyphs on tombs. They've got something terribly primal and ancient about them. Yes, almost timeless. I, I literally, the reason I picked the book up very quietly was just flicking through. So when I was reading it, I thought, when on earth was this written? Because I can't, I just couldn't have said. I know it has to be in some point since the 1950s because it's not a work of science fiction, but I couldn't tell you. There was no, it, it felt timeless. It's set in 59, I think, and it was first published in 1978. Yeah. But she has a pretty, I want to say pessimistic, and I don't want to say it because I, I, I think it's a realistic view of life in which... Compassion is necessary, but may well go to waste. Yeah. And there's no sense that the right thing to do or the right practice, like care of the dead, will necessarily yield you benefits. And I guess that's what's interesting about the paper, isn't it? That that we're dealing with something that the meaning of it is uncertain and also the benefit of it is pretty uncertain. You know, normally if you're tending... a wound you expect it to get better or you're feeding a child you expect them to feed there's a sort of the causal relation is easy to trace that once you've got something that's lost its agency Mm. it becomes several degrees more mysterious because it's not a tool you're not picking something up to hit another object with it Mm. it's a kind of interstitial thing a dead body There was that paper recently that came out last week where it got a lot of press because they were saying they were bringing pigs' brains back back to life. Oh, yes. And um, it was interesting because I read the paper and it was pretty hardcore. They got brains from slaughterhouses and then sort of put them in these vats full of special fluid. And the special fluid is effectively being pumped through to play a blood-like role and provide some of the things that blood provides. And they did find some metabolic activity still occurring, mm. but that's effectively chemistry. That's yeah. chemistry. And the brains didn't decay as quickly as control brains that weren't put in a vat of special fluid, which is literally a no-brainer, I suspect. But it was interesting <laughs> that the kind of the take from this was, you know, the, the raw, there were some interesting implications for stroke, I thought, the the idea that you could somehow that you know if you watch any you know kind of sci-fi like, what's it young frankenstein danger to not use this brain you know, the idea of a brain in a vat which would be the usable thing it was completely plugging into that and i think that was one of the main reasons it got covered all around the world because it was basically a paper about metabolic function which suggested a glimpse of where we could be reviving revivifying pig brains and maybe who knows what would be happening in ambulances as a consequence of that but it was extraordinary i thought the uh... well it's one of the kind of it, the the classic tropes though isn't it of, of of mystery fiction is that you may you may revive the animal yeah. but you don't revive the person yeah or, or it may be a different person yes once you've interrupted 
once consciousness is is, yeah. is absent for a while, yeah. the discontinuity is what's creepy about it. Yeah, yeah. The, the person who comes back is not the same person. Uh, you know, which is which which is as much as to say that we don't. You know, the, the precise nature of the relationship between the material organ and the the mind is is not entirely known. Well, I think we're probably there with that one. We've got to I think we've done. We've. I think we can say the neuromantics have done death. <laughs> yes. We've done death to death. Enough <laughs> death. Although I think we will revisit it. There's a lovely. Uh, I think one of my favourite poems is an extremely ancient text called "In Nano's Journey into Hell," and I thought we'd just end with that recommendation because in it, it's a, it's an extremely strange. Mesopotamian, ancient Mesopotamian poem in which Inanna decides to go to hell for reasons that actually have always been mysterious scholars don't quite understand it this is written in cuneiform on clay tablets this poem she goes to see her infernal sister Eresh Kigal and does she want to conquer her does she want to does she want to form some kind of alliance it's really an elaborate mythic metaphor for the seasons yeah. in the same way that the Persephone myth and Demeter myth is. But it has far less obvious sequences in it. It seems to be rather more random. What is absolutely in it, which is in this paper, which is, I think, in the little prodding motions of the Rossetti poem where things change gradually, is this sense of having to acclimatise mm. to the idea of death. So Inanna has to take off her garments until she's absolutely naked. She's divested of her human self or her human-seeming self. And in fact, her body is hung on a spike before it's revived in hell. And this seems to me to be about the problem of distinguishing the animate from the inanimate and the agency from non-agency mm. and thinking about the possibility of life returning because the one thing we haven't looked at which maybe we can look at next time is how we marry whether we're advanced primates or think of ourselves as humans how we marry time that goes forward in an arrow that leads inevitably to mortality with our cyclical grasp of time which is that certain things do come round again and they're the seasons. And I think maybe that is actually in the background of the paper too. Excellent. That might be something for next time. Let's find one for next time. Thank you. We are the Neuromantics. This has been episode four. And we'll see you again in a month's time. <laughs>